the title of today's sermon is Where Is He? Where is He? It's drawn from the text in John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7 and verse 11. Where is He? Let's pray. God of all creation, we come before Thee now. We ask Thy blessing upon the preaching of Thy word. Glorify Thy Son, Jesus Christ, through it. And, O Lord, please apply it with power and efficacy to our souls by the power and the working which is effectual from thy Holy Spirit. God, we need thee every hour. Be with us now in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of our sermon is Where Is He? In times like these, when panic is widespread among us, when people are scared, People are confused. People begin to feel hopeless, and people begin to call upon the name of the Lord as they did in Genesis 4, verse 26. However, people call on the name of the Lord in a number of ways, for the right reasons as well as for the wrong reasons. Sometimes it is accusatory and unbelieving. They say something like, where is God in all of this? If God were so good, why is he not helping us? Sometimes people ask, where is he? Sometimes people seek and call upon the name of the Lord from a place of fear. God, where are you? Please don't let this happen to us. Please don't let us perish in this time. Sometimes it is done with evil intent to get others to doubt or in order to persecute Christians. They might say, ah, you Christians say that your God would be with you always, even unto the end of the age. But where is he? It seems that he has abandoned you. So why don't you stop being foolish? Come back to reality and store up treasure for yourself in this world. This world is all that matters. But in doing this, such people play the part of Satan, the great accuser, the true liar, the murderer who was murdering from the beginning, the one who sows doubt, unbelief, and contention. Still, others call on the name of the Lord in belief, with a watching eye to his providence and care. Where is God? What is he doing through and in all of this? How is he working this for our good and his glory? What does he want us to learn at this time? So you see the difference there. It asks seeking to find out what God is doing, that obedience might be rendered to him, thankfulness, gratefulness might be given to him. We then, therefore, dear church, must be mindful how we seek the Lord, how we call upon his name. We must call upon him in faith. His name is a great refuge for us, for his name teaches us who he is and what he does. He is the Lord, Jehovah, the great I am, the one true omnipotent and sovereign who is over all things. We must call upon him faithfully, believing he is for us, is with us, and will work all things to our good. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, verses 12 and 13, The Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, we have an amazing narrative put before us in which our Lord Jesus feeds a vast multitude of 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children, probably closer to 10,000. And he feeds all these people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. After Jesus departs, the crowds immediately begin following after him to the other side of the sea. 
to be fed again at his hand. They assumed that Jesus was useful only to satiate the hunger of the body and to meet their physical needs. But Jesus, as was his common practice, immediately applies the physical miracle to its intended purpose, namely a spiritual teaching about their spiritual good, their spiritual need. Jesus tells them in verse 26, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. They were not seeking him. He recognizes they were not seeking him because of the glorious things he was doing and demonstrating his glory, his divinity, his power, but because they ate of the loaves and were filled. He goes on to exhort them, <clears throat> saying, Labor not for the meat or the food which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. It says this in verse 27. So the Jews, the multitude, sought him. They called upon his name, but for the wrong purposes. They called upon him. They sought him. Only for the needs of this temporary life, not for their spiritual needs. Jesus offers the corrective. They were to seek not after this momentary life only, but after him primarily as the source and substance of true life. Not just bread, but him. Not just physical needs met, but their spiritual needs. In verses 28 through 34, he tells them that they must labor as God has told them to labor. Not for physical bread, which even Moses could, have, could give them. He gave them man in the desert. Not to labor for physical bread, but for the true bread from heaven. Not for earthly manna, but for heavenly manna. He informs them that God the Father, quote, giveth you the true bread from heaven in verse 32. But they still did not understand. They thought what Jesus meant, possibly, was that just as Moses gave the people of Israel physical food from heaven for their physical bodies, that Jesus could give them even better food, even more food from heaven for their physical bodies. They had a physical mindset here. A temporary mindset, a worldly mindset. They thought Jesus was now here as the greater Moses to provide for their physical needs in an even greater way. So they cried out, Lord, evermore give us this bread in verse 34. But Jesus once again graciously corrects their misunderstanding, saying, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I urge you all to read the entirety of chapter 6. For in it we have one of the clearest expressions of the gospel from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He places before us the true purpose of his coming, not to provide all of our perceived needs in this life, not to provide all of the perceived needs in this life, but to provide eternal life for us. Not physical, but spiritual. And he was to do this by laying the laying down of his body and his blood for us, meaning his righteous life, which he lived on our behalf, and his sacrificial death, which he gave on our behalf on Calvary's cross. That was the true meaning. And Jesus explains this. Now, what was their response to this, to this astonishing message of grace and love? How did the Jews respond? How did the people who had come out and been fed by him respond to this astounding message of grace and love? Well, they said, quote, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? It's in verse 60. 
It's almost like they were saying, this is not what we wanted to hear. We want you to give us more bread to eat. We want you to care for our physical lives. What is this talk about eating your body and drinking your blood? What is this talk about giving yourself for the life of the world? We do not care about eternal life. We want to make sure that we are fed in this life. And what was their ultimate response to Christ's words? Well, we see in verse 66, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. One of the saddest verses. So they called upon the name of the Lord. They sought God. They followed Jesus, but only for material gain. Only for material gain. Many, many people in our day do this very same thing, especially in times of crisis. We're seeing this all around us. They say, the shelves, the shelves at the store, they're empty. How are we going to eat? Oh, Lord, please protect us and provide for us in this time. Give us this day our daily bread and deliver us from evil. They cry that out. They go and they pray now. But when the shelves are once again groaning under the weight of surplus, when their bellies are fat and they are happy, then they will no longer see a need for the Lord Jesus, and they will stop calling upon him and stop seeking him. In chapter 7 of John's Gospel, Jesus is urged by his brothers to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and to display his miracles and spread his teachings among the multitudes. Here's a great opportunity, Jesus. Go up. Demonstrate your glory. Demonstrate your glory through miracles, through your teachings. Tell them the truth. But what is Jesus' response? He responds in verse 8 of chapter 7, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. The multitudes had rejected his teaching and his miracles. His time to fully display his glory was not yet come, so he chose to attend the feast after it had begun and to go there, quote, not openly, but as it were in secret. We see that in verse 10. It is here that we now come to our text for this sermon, which is in verse 11. It says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? The Jews sought Christ, asking, Where is he? Where is Jesus at this time? Is it that now of all times, they said, that he seems to be hidden? At the feast there was, quote, much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. It's verse 12. So some of these people assumed his motives to be for the good of the people, and others thought it was for their destruction. They murmured. In other words, there was much talk about Jesus. So, too, in times like this, people become very spiritual all of a sudden. There's much talk about God. There's much talk about religion going on right now. People are asking, where is he? Is all this Jesus stuff real? We as Christians reply, yes, yes, indeed. God is good, merciful, and loving. He is working all things for our good and his glory. Yet others are replying, no, but Jesus either does not exist or he does not care about us. Or why would all of this be going on? But people ask that all the time. It just ramps up in times of crisis. Now, so too in our passage before us in verse 11, people were inquiring about the Lord Jesus Christ. From many different motives did they ask, where is he? But ask they did. They were asking for all sorts of reasons, but they were still asking. They were seeking him. They were seeking after Jesus, asking where he was. 
That is because nobody, after hearing about Jesus Christ, can remain indifferent to him or his message. After you hear about Jesus Christ, you cannot remain indifferent to him or his message. Everyone must make a decision. Everyone must make a decision as to who Jesus is. So the question, where is he, has been asked in many different ways and from many different motives throughout time, and is still being asked in such manner. Let us do three things then today. First, let's see the ways this question is asked. Secondly, let's see how believers experientially seek Jesus. How do believers do it? And number three, lastly, we'll ask ourselves the question and give answer. First, let us see the ways this question is sometimes asked. Some people ask, where is he? Out of hate. They ask where God is out of hate, desiring even to slay the Lord Jesus or to destroy the progress of his kingdom. Sounds kind of harsh. But this is the thought process of the unregenerate, the unbelieving, those who are not saved. Even the most moral and the nicest unsaved person can have this goal in mind. For all of them are at enmity with God. They're at enmity against God, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8-7. They're at enmity in their carnal mind. They wage an unholy war against him. You see, no unregenerate person, no unsaved person, no unbelieving person seeketh after God, the scriptures tell us. For no one doeth good, the Bible says. You can find this in Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Their motive for asking, where is he, is always from a place of unbelief. All unsaved persons are sinners, just like all people are sinners. We know this from Romans three, twenty-three, among many other passages. And many sinners seek to destroy the work of the Lord, or even the Lord himself, if they can. Though this is a ridiculous notion, they still would love to slay the Lord Jesus if they could. Remember, such was the motivation of Herod when asking the wise men where Christ the babe was. After he was born, he sought him. He sought him that he might destroy him. You see this in Matthew 2, verse 13. So too, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the chosen first apostles, though a false apostle, sought opportunity to betray Jesus. He sought opportunity to betray Jesus in Matthew 26, 16. And the priests, the scribes, and the elders consulted together that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. That's Matthew 26, verse 4. Some people have sought to discern possibly where the gospel was going forth with power and to squash it, to quelch it, either by persecution or by preaching Christ, as Paul says, of envy and strife, supposing to add affliction to ministers of the gospel. They must have the progress of the gospel stopped because they're evil, they're wicked, they hate God, they don't want the gospel to go out. So they either persecute the church or try to silence the church, either by killing those in charge, making them scatter, or by preaching Christ out of envy, Paul says. They ask, where is he? So that they might destroy Jesus and his work. Such efforts are futile, however. Christ will have his kingdom established on earth, and he will raise up all who come to him, namely those who have been drawn to him by his Father. John 6, verse 37 and verse 44. Some other people ask, where is he? In an attempt to promote disbelief, deny God's existence, and taunt the followers of Christ. That's their motive in asking. They do this in times of trouble especially, pointing to supposedly unfulfilled promises of God because they're unspiritual, so they cannot discern spiritual things. The Apostle Peter warned against such persons, saying, 
in Second Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. There shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Namely, they'll be saying something like, I thought Jesus promised he would return and restore all things. You hear people say this. They'll tell us, you say that he has promised to care for you, but it appears he has abandoned you. Why don't you just curse God and die? As Job's wife said to him in Job 2.9. They might say, wouldn't it just be better to curse God and die, to abandon this whole Christianity thing, than to be holding on to some false hope and living a lie? Which clearly you are because God doesn't care about you. These are the kinds of assaults we get. And people that are asking, where is God? In times like this, or where is God? When they're asking this, they they have a motive to simply cast doubt, to sow discord, and to taunt the followers of Jesus Christ, Christians. Some others ask, where is he? Out of unbelieving fear, doubting God's power, sufficiency, and faithfulness. This sometimes happens among Christians. This sometimes happens among uh, unbelievers who are unregenerate but think they're Christians. They're like the the, the seed that fell among the thorns. Just like godly sorrow leads us to believing repentance, so too godly fear leads us to a believing trust in God. Worldly fear creates a scarcity mindset, a a mindset that makes you need to go out and hoard up all the goods, to fear each next day, and to ignore Christ's words to, quote, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on, Is not the life more than meat, Jesus says, more than food, and the body more than raiment or clothing? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That's Matthew 6, verse 25, verse 31, and verses 32 through 34 that we see Jesus' words. Godly sorrow leads to believing repentance. Godly fear leads to believing trust in God. By worldly fear is constantly thinking about the next day, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink. It's scared. It's fearful. We must remember, though, that if God has spoken it, then it shall be done. God's wills and shalls are wills and shalls indeed. In times of panic, we as Christians have no reason to be anxious. God will care for us. Therefore, we ought to ask him for those things that we have need of, knowing that he will supply us with them. We must heed the Apostle Paul's words to the Philippians in Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7. Be careful, Paul says, which means anxious. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, Paul says, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So to be unbelievingly anxious about the future, wringing your hands, worried, as if that can solve your problems, as if you can control the future, is blasphemous to God because it slights his character his attributes, and it casts doubt upon his word. So some others also will ask, where is he? Out of a heart of repentance, a heart of repentance. They're humbly seeking to confess sin, to trust the Lord for forgiveness, and to show gratitude. That's why they're asking where he is. Such was the motive of the bride when seeking her groom in Song of Solomon, chapter 5. She asked, where is he? 
She asked, where is he, hoping to find him, that she might repent of sending him away. She was humble. She was humbled by the fact that he came to her in the night and, and, and knocked and rapped on the door, asking her to come out, asking her to let him in. I mean, and she said, go, my feet are dirty. I can't, or my feet were dirty and I've cleaned them. I can't get up and make them dirty again. I can't, I'm already in bed. I can't get up now and come let you in. And then finally she went to the door to let him in and he was gone. She'd pushed her beloved away, pushed her groom away. So now she came seeking him. Where is he? She walked through the streets telling the daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick of love. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 8. She was sick of love, which means that she wished to have her beloved again. She longed after him. She yearned after him. She felt sorry for what she had done in the sense of sorrow. She felt sorrow. She felt repentance. She was humbled by her own actions and was seeking to come after him to reconcile. She knew she had sinned in sending him away. And so she sought him in repentance, humility, and love. So too, the wounded Job also sought God in Job 23, verse 3, crying out, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. So Job himself asked, where is he? Where is God? So that he might find God to repent of his sins, accepting God's merciful love toward him in humble gratitude. So some do indeed seek God out of repentance. Some others ask, where is he? Out of a true love for Jesus, seeking him that they might sweetly commune with him and serve him. Such is the heart of the saved man. He pines after Christ. He thirsts after him. He desires him. He longs after him. He seeks Christ that he might have him, might be Christ's servant, Christ's friend, Christ's beloved. The soul of the believer thirsteth for God, for the living God, crying out, when shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 42, verse 2. This was also the motive of the bride in the Song of Solomon when she was seeking her groom, previous to her sending him away. I will rise now, she said, in Song of Solomon 3.2, and go about the city, in the street, and in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. She sought him because she loved him. And some indeed do seek Jesus, asking, where is he out of a true love for him? Let us also, dear church, seek our Jesus because we love him. Second point, let's see how believers experientially seek Jesus. We do this in a number of ways. We Believers seek him at the mercy seat when we cry out to him in private prayer. So that's one way. We seek him at the mercy seat in private prayer. We can answer the question, where is he? By saying, ah, he's at the throne of glory. His mercy seat, awaiting my prayers and his supplic- and my prayer, awaiting my prayers and my supplications. He's at the throne of glory. The throne of mercy, awaiting my prayers and my supplications. Now, we always have access to God through Christ as Christians. He is ever ready, always ready to hear our needs and to hold communion with us, to to be with us, to speak with us, to comfort us, to love us, to spend time with us. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, he says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they might be seen of men. Verily, or truly, I say unto you, that they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. 
Where is Jesus? We might ask. Where is Jesus? Well, we answer, he is waiting to be found by us at his mercy seat in private prayer. We must come in faith and in sincerity. That is the one caveat. We must come in faith and sincerity, not offering up vain repetitions, as Jesus says, meaning we don't offer up thoughtless, cold prayer. We have to come in faith and sincerity. Come as we are. Come reverently. Come humbly. Come believing that he will hear us, that the God of all creation will hear us, the Lord of all. We must offer up heartfelt, thoughtful, and genuine prayers, not cold, thoughtless, vain prayers. We are beckoned by grace to come unto Jesus. We are assured that he will receive us and hear our prayers if they are offered from a true heart. The apostle exhorts us in Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear Christian, we can be bold and confident in our coming to Christ because his throne is a throne of grace, a throne of grace, from which he dispenseth mercy to all those in need. And we are needy indeed as sinners. Though justified, we are yet sinners. Eustace uh, et, et peccator, we are still sinful, though we are justified. He will surely, Christ will surely be found by those who seek him at his throne. Those who come to him shall in no wise be cast out, he says in John 6, 37. Another way we experientially seek Jesus as believers is by coming to Jesus through his word. As we search the sacred page, as we search the scriptures, we come seeking Jesus in the word of God. In the word of God. The Holy Scripture Paul says, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So when we come to the word of God, when we open our Bibles and read its divine instructions, we find Jesus Christ, who is himself the word of God. John 1, 1. To seek Christ in the scriptures is to be taught at his very feet, as it were. And in so doing, we have chosen the best portion, like Mary did in Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. I admonish you to read that. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Believers can answer this question by saying, He is to be found in the word of God. Jesus himself commanded the Jews to, quote, search the scriptures in John 5, 39. And we do well to obey him in this. We should search the scriptures, for it is there in the sacred page that we find him. Upon the pages of scripture, we find the very words of God, which set before us the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the place where we find him and we seek him. As the apostle said in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, so all the things contained in the Old Testament, he, he goes on to say, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, by his son, whom he, had, wh whom he hath made the heir of all things. May all we who desire to find Jesus, all of us who desire to find Jesus, come to the scriptures wherein we can feed upon him and be taught of God. Another way believers seek for Jesus is in the assembly of his people, even when there's just two or three people. 
The apostle commands us in Hebrews 10.25 to be mindful of not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. We remember that God inhabits the praises of his people. We read that in Psalm 22, verse 3. And that the Lord is spiritually present in the means of grace. This is why it is essential. This is why it is essential for Christians to gather on the Lord's day. For Christians to gather on the Lord's day. So that they might hear the reading and preaching of God's word because the Lord is spiritually present in the means of grace on the Lord's day. So they can hear the reading and preaching of God's word. They can sing praises to him, offer prayers, and partake of the Lord's supper. These are the means of grace God has given us. So we don't forsake assembling together for that reason. So now in this strange time we are in, this unprecedented time in history, we are attempting to honor this command to not forsake assembling with this outdoor service we're doing and through our emphasis on family worship and providing resources. But we should also keep in mind that it is not merely in the Lord's Day gathering that we fellowship with Jesus. We do find him there. We seek him, we say, where is he? And we find him in the fellowship of the Lord's Day gathering. But it is also every time two or more Christians are gathered together that we fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship and conference, that specific time where we get together to talk about spiritual things, are also essential means of grace in our lives, not just the gathering on the Lord's Day. And in this essential means of grace that is fellowship with other believers and conference, it is that means of grace whereby Christ ministers to us through each other as we exhort one another daily, as the Apostle says in Hebrews 3.13. A place where we encourage each other to remain steadfast in the truth. Jesus ministers to us through our gathering together, even when it's two or three. Believers also seek Jesus in the field of service, meaning where they're called, whether they're missionaries, whether they're pastors, whether they're a computer analyst or a janitor. In the field of service, wherever we serve Christ is where we seek him and find him. We cannot serve him without his presence, his power, and his aid. And he is with us as we serve him as Christians. Knowing this, King David declared in 2 Samuel 23:2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. He recognized that it was God who was ministering through him. The Apostle Paul also recognized that the Thessalonian church received the word preached by him, quote, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. And that they did this only because it was the Lord himself working effectually in them, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Jesus' promise to be with us always, even unto the end of the world, was in the context of the Great Commission. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and then follows it up with, I will be with, thee, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. When we serve God in our specific callings as Christians, we must keep in mind that we will only be successful if the Lord himself works through us. Therefore, we have to seek him in our serving of him. Let us therefore be dependent upon his aid and seek him as we serve him, dear church. Believers seek Jesus in another way, in the fires of affliction. We find him, we ask where is he, and we find him in the fires of affliction. Recall that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace, that they were unharmed, and a fourth was seen walking among them. A fourth person was seen walking among them. Do you, do you recall that? It's an amazing, amazing passage. And that fourth one was in the form, his form is like the son of God, it was said in Daniel 3.25. They peered into the fiery furnace, 
where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were placed in to die. And they looked in, they saw that they were unharmed, number one. And number two, that there was a fourth figure walking around them, around them, in the fiery furnace. The form of the fourth is like the Son of God, they said. Christ is with us in the fiery furnace of affliction. We will surely pass through safely. We will be unharmed in this fiery affliction. So we seek Jesus in the fires of our affliction, in our trials. During times of panic, stress, hardship, affliction, or persecution, it is normal for us for us to ask, where is he? And to a degree, we should ask this. But we must do it out of a heart of faith. We must do it out of faith. We must ask, where is he? In the, only insofar as we are seeking to know what he has for us in this season, in this time. We must also seek Christ for comfort in our trials. For his sustaining grace. Asking him that he would use the trial for our spiritual progress, that he would reveal himself to us in a greater manner than before through this trial, and that he might bear us up during it. He promises to do so, and thus we have great confidence as Christians in asking him for it. God knoweth what knoweth that we have need of all these things. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 6, 32? He knoweth that we have need of all all these things before we even ask him. And thus, we can be sweetly assured that he that spared not his own son, Jesus Christ, but delivered him up for us all, will surely with him also freely give us all things, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.32. The Apostle Peter gave comfort to Christians who were in the fiery furnace of affliction with these words. In 1 Peter 5 Verses 12 and 13, he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. So we are to rejoice in our sufferings. But how can we do this? Why would we do this? How can we do this? Because we realize that we are partakers with Christ in his sufferings. Christ who was the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief, as Isaiah 53 tells us, that same Christ comforts us in our afflictions. In Jesus Christ, we do not have an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, the apostle says in Hebrews 4.15, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So, dear believer, in our temptations, our trials, our afflictions, Christ holds us up, and nothing shall snatch us from his hand. Nothing and no one shall snatch us from his hand. Nothing shall separate us from his love. It has been given us in Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's Philippians 1.29. So though it's been given, given us in Christ not only to believe him, believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, we can also be comforted with the knowledge that Quote, God is faithful who will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way, a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 So he, being God, who sovereignly places us in the trial we are in, will also provide us with the strength to endure it. And this strength is found in him, him alone. As believers, when we ask, where is he? We must ask it, knowing that God is near to us, with us, and in us by the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Third, lastly, we must now ask ourselves the question, where is he? And give the answer. Where is Jesus, dear believer? Is he at the bottom of your trust? 
Is he at the very bottom of your trust? Meaning, is he the foundation of your trust? Is he the anchor of your soul, as we read about in Hebrews 6.19? Is he the content of all your hope and of all your assurance? Or do you have your hope set on the things of earth? Are you trusting in the deliverance of man or government or people or of God? The Christian must respond this way. Yes, Christ is all my trust, all my hope, all my desire. I have set my affections on things above. I seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. I know that when Christ appears, who is my life, that I shall appear with him in glory. I am able to say with the psalmist that Jehovah is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. I know that without him I can do nothing, and that he alone is my redeemer. And I know that my redeemer liveth. That should be the response that the Christian gives when asked, is Christ the foundation of your trust? Is he the content of your trust, the, the goal of your trust, the aim of your trust, the foundation, the anchor of your trust? We also must ask, dear believer, where is Jesus? Is he at the root of all of your joy? He's the root of, is he the root of our joy? What reason do you have not to have joy, dear believer? If you have made the source of your joy anything but Christ, then you have every reason to expect your joy to fail. Then you do. But if you have placed your hope, your trust, and your life in Christ and his work, then you will rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8. So again, I ask, how could you not have joy if the root of your joy is Christ? If Christ is your life, you must and will be joyous. Take your eyes off of self and off of your present circumstances and place them upon Christ. That is the key to joy. That's the key to joy. Not looking at self, not looking at your present circumstances and wringing your hands and worrying, but looking upon Christ. That is the key to joy. Not looking at your sin, not looking at your mistakes, not looking at your failures, not looking at the future and its fears, but looking to Christ. When we look to self or man, we will only see hopelessness. When we look at Christ, we see a sure way to reconciliation with God. We see God with us. We see God at peace with sinners. We see love unparalleled laid out before us. We see all the wrath we deserve for our sins satisfied and done away with, and all the love, grace, and mercy we do not deserve lavished freely upon us. How can such truths not beget joy within the forgiven soul? That's the real question. Keep in mind, keep in mind, keep in your constant remembrance even, that God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Also keep in your constant remembrance that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. That, that, how could you not have joy? That is a great, great motivation for joy, a great source of joy. When we keep those things in constant remembrance, that God has demonstrated his love for us by dying for us while we were sinners, that he demonstrated his love for us that by giving his son Jesus Christ and uniting us to him by faith alone, not by works, then joy will naturally spring up within us. Christ is the greatest treasure, and that treasure is ours. Where is he? Let us answer, he is at the root of all my joy. 
Where is Jesus, dear believer? We can ask again. Is he on the throne of your heart? Does he govern all your actions, words, emotions, and thoughts? Do you honor his lordship over you by taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ? Do you therefore put off the old man with his deeds and put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering? Do you forbear with one another and forgive one another? If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. That's the command of scripture by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. So, dear Christian, let us make sure that we know where Jesus is, that we know that he is on the throne of our hearts. Also, we can ask, where is Jesus? Is he at the end of your pilgrimage? Is he at the end of your pilgrimage? As Christians, we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, 1 Peter 2.11 tells us. We are on a pilgrimage. We're passing through this current evil realm to our heavenly home with Christ. Our end goal is to be with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. That place, that magnificent place where we will no longer see him as we do now, namely as in a glass, darkly, a mirror, dimly, but we'll see him as he truly is. We'll see him face to face, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. The chief end or the, the purpose, the reason all people are created, the chief end of all created people is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question one tells us this. Is it therefore the, it is therefore, if that's the case that all people who are created are, their chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It is therefore even more so the case that the chief end of all Christians is to glorify Christ by the entirety of their lives, meaning everything they do and from beginning to end and to enjoy him through sweet communion and holy living, both now and forever. That's the chief end of the Christian. Where's Jesus? Is he at the end of your pilgrimage? Do you have him as your goal? Dear believer, is Christ the chief end of your life? Can you say with the Apostle Paul that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can you say amen to Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth? That whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Can you amen that? Where is Jesus? Is he your goal? Oh, that he would be, dear believer. Oh, that we would count him worthy of all sacrifice in this life. Worthy of all discomfort, all self-denial, all persecution, all hardship. Oh, that God would make us so. Oh, Lord, create that within us. That must be our prayer. Lord, when we ask, where is Jesus? Let us see him as the end, the chief end, the goal, the substance of our life. Dear believer, as this time in our country draws to a close in the near future, God willing, let us not be among those who then cease from asking, where is he? Let us always ask, where is he? Let us always be seeking the Lord Jesus, for he is our life, our joy, our peace, our all in all. Let us seek after him with true hearts and with reverence, dear believer. In all humility, knowing that from him and through him and to him are all things. He is our life. We will stand strong through all of life's uncertainties, dear believer, through all the wiles of the devil, only by Christ's power. And that power is made available to us freely and abundantly. We have access to him. Let us therefore put on the whole armor of God, as Paul said, so that we might be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. 
Stand therefore, Paul says, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Let us not be, dear church, as those who ask, where is Jesus? In an evil way. Ask, where is Jesus? In a fearful way, not believing his promises. In a doubting way. Let us not be those who ask, where is Jesus? And pray to him and seek him. And yet, when things go back to normal, when whatever affliction they're under passes, forget. Go about their daily life again. Rather, dear church, let us be as those who ask, where is he? As the bride did, seeking her groom in Song of Solomon, where is he? I must have him. I must know him, enjoy him, fellowship with him, commune with him, serve him, love him, follow him. Let us be as those people, dear church, who ask, where is Jesus? From a heart of love, a heart of, compa- a heart of, a heart of joy, a heart of faithfulness and belief, not simply from a heart of unbelief that's just trying to figure out answers in the time being. Dear church, put on the full armor of God. Seek after him in prayer and love, for he will surely meet you at the throne of grace. Let's pray. O omnipotent teacher, we come before thee, our great God and Savior, and we ask, O Lord, that thou wouldest apply thy word to our hearts. We ask, Lord Jesus, that thou wouldest be pleased to work in us a hunger for thy word and for thy truth, a desire to live for thee and thee alone, that we would be empowered by thy Holy Spirit, O God, to seek after Jesus, to be submissive to his leading, honoring of his power, and thankful for his sacrifice. O Holy Spirit, we bow before thee, asking for thy enabling and thy strengthening of us weak sinful men. Be pleased, O great triune God, to be Lord of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.